Hello and welcome to the Tribcast. This is Russell Gold from the Wall Street Journal, author of the new book, The Boom, How Fracking Ignited the American Energy Revolution and Changed the World. So push those earbuds a little deeper in your ears and turn up the fracking volume. Here's your host, Reeve Hamilton. Thank you. This is reporter Reeve Hamilton here with the Tribcast for the final day of April. It's very exciting. Heading into May, I'm joined by executive editor Ross Ramsey. Howdy. Reporter Jim Malowitz. Hey. And celebrity guest Terry Langford. Hi. You sound very excited to, to be here. This I'm, is your first one. This is my first one. Yeah. Well, hopefully it goes okay. You're going to start us off. I think we are, we're sort of, it's sort of breaking news. I mean, we're still sort of reeling from the news out of Oklahoma this morning is of a botched execution, or I guess an ultimately successful ex- execution in one state execution. Right. It uh, centers on the use of the drug midazolam. And that's something that Texas has on hand. Um, it's had it on hand since June of last year, but has, as we, as we think, at this point in time, they haven't used yet. Uh, and so, do we know? Do they plan to use it? When can you sort of explain what exactly went wrong in Oklahoma? Um, they used a two-step cocktail, and the midazolam is used as sort of a pre-anesthesia. That's its usual normal use. And Oklahoma was using that. And from what we can tell, and from news reports. Um, he, they used it and the, there was a line that uh, pulled and it didn't put him totally out. And so he gagged um, and was still conscious for much longer than anyone anticipated. Um, this also happened in an Ohio execution a couple of months ago using the same drug, midazolam. Now, this has been something that uh, Texas inmates have been fighting for the right to see the kind of drugs they're going to be used each and every time. And in the executions this month, there were three. That was part of the appeals. So can you not blame the line if this has happened with the drug before? Does that make it more? You can just say, oh, well, it was the line. We're still trying to figure out exactly Mm -hmm. what happened in Oklahoma. But we know for certain that in Ohio, that drug seemed to produce a reaction. And it's something that a lot of death penalty opponents are jumping on today. And they had planned to have a double execution. Obviously, I think they put off the second, second. one because the first one went so badly. Uh, but so for the next execution in Texas, do we know, will they rethink which drugs they use? Do we have any indication of that? Obviously, we're only a few hours after this happened, really. So far, TDCJ is saying nothing. Um, in fact, when I contacted them early this morning, I was told by a spokesman there, we don't know what we stockpile, and we don't know the drug they used in Oklahoma. I think someone was ill-informed who got to the phone to me. I think they do know that. But so far, we're not hearing from them. And they're, but all the states are kind of secretive about what drugs they use and how they do this. And um, it, it sounds like it's partly to protect manufacturers and partly just because they're secretive agencies. You know, it's like they have the drug to put you to sleep. They have the drug that puts you to death once you're put to sleep. And it's the sleep drug that's been the problem, right? That's right. Um, In 32 states that the AP took a look at, uh, there is sort of a veil of secrecy and it's it's becoming increasing. Part of the reasons the states will say is because once the pharmacies producing these drugs are named, they suffer um, all kinds of um, sort of... uh, 
um, problems. Everybody who's against the death penalty focuses on the pharmacy. Right. right. And they've turned to compounding pharmacies. And those are pharmacies that, you know, when you go and certain drugs, you, you go and a compounding pharmacy will put together the drug right there. And that's what's going on is they're having to rely on that because the manufacturer of the drugs that were used a few years ago, um, the manufacturer of those have stopped. Is that problematic, too, because we hear a lot of news about unregulated compounding pharmacies uh, because the the feds don't have a lot of oversight and the states have no oversight? That's a really good question, and it's been a problem up in the Northeast. There was a contamination problem with a compounding pharmacy, and and mold got into the compounding pharmacy. So this has been a problem, but we don't know much about them. Do they all have names that are very fun to say? All the drugs (laughs) or the compound pharmacies? All the drugs. (laughs) Dazzleam is like a – it's a great name. It's fun. It's unfortunate that it's uh, gotten the way it's gone. Okay. <laughs> Welcome to the Tribcast. Yeah, yeah. Reeves, Reeves always a weird moderator. Yeah. It's just this way. You know, We can't do anything about it apparently. Uh, so, uh, But at this point, sort of, we do have it. We don't know how we, we do plan have to use it. it. Right. We don't know how we plan to use it. It's been on the shelf at TDCJ. Um, we have documents that show that since last June. All right. Well, let's move on to the previously scheduled programming where uh, Jim is going to lead us in a history lesson, I think, of the Bureau of Land Management. And in his story on this topic, he said that all you need to know to understand this issue is the Louisiana Purchase, some treaty I can't pronounce, Buck James, the Langford family. It's a good thing we have Terry Langford here. And the huge legal ramifications for the different ways a river can move. Uh, so we have just a few minutes if you could tie all that together for <laughs> oh, thanks. us. Yeah, it's, it's a little bit of a mouthful. Uh, just pull up, pull up on your carpet squares and uh, uh, gather around. Um, <laughs> um, and, and yeah, basically we, we have a really interesting issue right now um, along the Red River, and uh, I think a lot of folks are confused about it. It's sort of the first um, sort of public declarations we had about this dispute, which is basically over this um, roughly 90,000 acres of land that – um, the federal government says sort of sits between Texas and Oklahoma. Um, it sits between between them because the river has moved over time, the river which has sort of made up the Texas-Oklahoma boundary. Um, uh, sort of, we, we, We've heard a lot of sort of incomplete statements from uh, Texas uh, uh, politicos who are kind of seizing on this to, to, you know, be angry at the federal government saying, you know, don't take our land. Um, and so I tried to sort of dig deep and kind of understand the history behind it. And it, and it really is complex. And, 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 and there are a lot of questions for some of these ranchers who, um, with, with some of these 90,000 acres, uh, we don't know how much because it hasn't been surveyed. Um, there's thousands of acres that, that ranchers, you know, over the generations have, have, have owned. They've, they've purchased the deeds. They, they have the local deeds right now. Um, they've been paying taxes on it. Uh, they've been grazing cattle and, and raising crops. And um, now the BLM um, sort of in its its bureaucratic machine has decided that it's it's time to update what it, call, what it calls its resource management plan um, for an area that includes Texas, Oklahoma, and Kansas. Um, so like this area is just a small section of it. Um, it's updating its plans, basically deciding, you know, here's what we're going to do in Slana. We're going to close it. We're going to open it, uh, um, open it for grazing or what, what have you, or sell it. Um, and, uh, yeah, it includes this sort of disputed strip of land. And, and, and they say, you know, based upon uh, past court cases, um, including a 19 and 23-24 um, Supreme Court case between Texas and Oklahoma, that it's established that there is this section of land. It's, it's between the – basically the middle of the river – South is supposedly um, federal land, but rivers change over time. Um, so it's hard to, to know kind of how big that section is. And there have been 
some litigation um, with some private landowners uh, over the land where where that federal precedent has been set that yes there, there's some land and they say you know here's where it ends in, in, in this patch of land, but it's hard to know sort of where all the boundaries go. Um, so it's just a completely gray situation. So was the federal land created by the movement of the river, or was there a piece of federal land up there anyway, and the river happened to move, and one of the landowners in this fight happens to be the federal government? Yeah, so that's, that's a good question. And 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 actually, along the way, uh, the federal government hasn't really been a litigate, litigant in, in these issues. But um, like in the 24 court case, um, and, and, and yeah, Ross, so... so so there's always been this sliver of land that, and just because it was never allocated to either state, just over time, just kind of a quirk in the way it was parceled out, um, is kind of like unclaimed, and so it was like became de facto federal land. Um, and uh, but in some of these court cases, a lot of them were litigated in Oklahoma. It was Oklahomans trying to say, hey, you know, as the river moves north, right. um, over time, that land that. That Texas that Texans think is is theirs, you know, sort of on the southern e- edge of the river that's that's moving north shouldn't be theirs because they're arguing that the river moved in a way where it should not have Does, moved the boundary. And the, but they're also using their own definition of, they of river movement, right? Like right. The, there was a theme in your story that you wrote about this of Oklahoma judges deciding that more of that land should go to Oklahoma. Basically, yeah, there, there was sort of this flurry of lawsuits. Um, one of the the biggest ones we talk about was a rancher Tommy Henderson, who's kind of become the de facto spokesperson for the landowners. He doesn't have any more land to lose, but he's the only one. Uh, most he he says, you know, most of the people are dead or retired from his case. He's thirty years old when he litigated it, so he pulled out this this uh, suitcase he had, uh, or, or I guess a, more of a briefcase with all of his documents uh, that he had stowed behind his desk at home, and uh, he started going through them, shared some with me. Um, but uh, but yeah, it was, it was mostly a lot of these these cases were litigated in Oklahoma, um, Texas, and Oklahoma, and the federal government have different definitions for for the boundary issue and texas's definition um is and i won't get into avulsion and accretion the difference between those we always try to avoid avulsion yeah. and accretion here on the, the on the podcast but the, but the definition that texas has is the same as the federal government's um so um but 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 the oklahoma one is different and it, it's sort of it's more broad and, and and it gives more more leeway for saying that the uh, the boundary would not have moved. Let me let um, me ask what I think is a simple question, but yeah. probably doesn't have a simple answer because that would be too easy. If I own an acre of land on the Texas side, and the river moves so that that acre of land is now in Oklahoma as a matter of state geography, did the ownership change? And it depends on how the river moved. So okay, so I can actually lose the ownership of the land. You could. It's not just a matter of which state it's in. It's a matter of who actually owns it. That, that That's correct. Okay. And, and then to make matters more complicated, uh, in 2000, Texas and Oklahoma um, created this Red River Compact, this boundary compact. Uh, it was approved by Congress, and it set the political and jurisdictional lines as what's called the vegetation line along the river, which is basically kind of a um, just a site that you, sort of you can see – where the vegetation is, and it's this idea because there, there, are, there are these islands of sin that people are calling up in the middle of the river where no one had jurisdiction because you didn't know. You, you could commit a crime. That sounds like You a could hit. kill somebody and say, hey, um, hey Texas uh, Rangers, now I was in Oklahoma, and, and vice versa, and like no one could prove where you were. So the I mean, idea- Jim's, Jim's- uh, islands of Sin stories are behind the paywall. There's prostitution. There, there's there's gamble, like illegal gambling. There, there are drugs on like these little areas that oh, were kind knew? of like islands in the river. But great but, spot for our next live. But, but, but anyway, so they, you know, they, they they created this compact. 
But, uh, you know, you, you would think, you know, maybe that would address this issue because you have this line that you can see and here's here's the border. But the compact had, had no um, no ramifications for property ownership. And that, that, that's a lot of confusion. You know, uh, Greg Abbott came out and said, you know, what about the compact? And, and the answer is that it has nothing to do with this. So all the politicians are jumping in. Is this clear enough for politics? I mean, is this a clear enough set of these guys did these guys wrong for a politician to step in and say, you know, this is a federalism issue. I mean, it sounds muddy as heck. It does seem it, like a lot of people were paying money on land that now they're being told they never owned. It does. Sort of. And, and, and that's, you know, that's like the fundamental issue um, in this whole deal. Like, I, it, it certainly doesn't sound fair. You know, in my objective opinion, um, it seems like, you know, there could be some. Some could say it. <laughs> some some say it, yes. <laughs> um, but, but, but it is completely muddy. And, and like a lot of the initial statements, and, and I haven't seen a, a statement from from anyone, you know, any politicians speaking out about this that, that has had a lot of context, but a lot of them are just saying, hey, it's this land grab. You know, and this is, of course, in the, in the wake of the, the Clive and Bundy deal, which has nothing to do with this. Um, right, so, I mean, that's another BLM issue, but it's right. what BLM is the issue. difference? Yeah, the, the difference Clive and is, Bundy obviously is a kooky guy that wanted to uh, raise his, his raising cattle. Raising his cows on somebody else's um, land and yeah. not paying right. somebody else, which happens term? to be the federal the, the, government. Kooky, kooky yeah. is a very generous term. Right, there's no, <laughs> there's no dispute in that, that that's federal land and he didn't want to pay his grazing fees. And and pretty much anyone that I've talked to who's invested in this and you know, is like working on, on behalf of Texas landowners is saying, yeah, don't bring that into it because it's ridiculous. Um, to, to to say that these are, are similar issues, but um, it is it is very muddy, and 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 there have been inaccuracies in a lot of the press statements, um, that kind of thing. Um, but th- th- there are some really interesting property rights issues at at the heart of this. Um, but I, I guess from a reporter standpoint, who is concerned, you know, interested in what the facts of. Uh, of the case are, um, you know, it's kind of hard not to be annoyed at, at folks who don't clearly don't understand all the, the legal history, kind of just opining on it on, you know, national TV, um, that kind of thing. So, Plus, plus there's those islands of sin. We have to come back to that yeah. at some point. Oh, please. Yeah. Holy please. cow. The possibilities are great. Yeah. There's, man, is that what the federal government really wants? They want <laughs> control of the sin islands. The sin islands. And, and, and actually, I mean, uh, Sounds like a three-part series. Who could blame them? And, yeah. and, and actually, <laughs> another trip. another important <laughs> factoid in, in, in all of this is, is just keeping in mind that we don't know, because there hasn't been a survey, we don't know how much of this land has been managed by the Texans. Um, so, I mean, there's clearly some, but we don't know how, how much. And so from the BLM standpoint, they say, okay, our interpretation is that this is our land, the courts have said that this is our land, that, that we have the responsibility to manage. They're big bureaucracy. They have duties given to them by Congress and the, the rest of the federal government. And and there's also pe- uh, parts of land that haven't been managed by anybody. And, and they say these are anecdotes they say that they've gathered, but but there there is some sinning on, on some of these untouched uh, parts of land, too, that, that no one's claimed, um, like trash, um, you know, par- parties being thrown with... Um, leaving trash, uh, burning tires, um, meth cooking, that kind of thing. They listed those. Um, and uh, I, I don't have sort of concrete evidence of that. That was sort of their, you know, th- th- their deal. But uh, And there's and there's oil in this country too, right? Um, yeah, and, and there are mineral rights, um, although, you know, that's maybe something to consider. Not quite as valuable as the meth, but it's definitely something to keep in mind. But uh, I, I don't think um, anyone's that interested. I, I, I don't think anyone's going to be tapping 
the border there right now because it's just they're, they're better places to, to drill right now. So what's the timeline on this? Will this all be resolved next week? Or is <laughs> no. It, you know, and, and this actually, year? And, and here's the other frustrating thing for, for Texas ranchers. You know, they're trying to decide, should we keep paying our taxes? You know, if it's not our land, uh, we can't sell our land because who's going to want to buy land that, that, you know, you don't know if, if, if it's yours. Uh, but, but, but the timeline is is a final plan um, no, no earlier than 2018. The uh, draft plan is due within 18 to 24 months. So we have a long time for, for some litigation or, or, or from some legislation. I mean, I, I think Congress could play a role in this and basically, you know, they can maybe tell the BLM what to do um, if the BLM says, you know, we have to do something. Um, so it's uh, it's going to be messy for a little little while. So we get to talk about this in the next governor's race too. Mm-hmm. Great How about that. And I'm going to write about it as long as you guys give me a chance to do it. I want I want to yeah. see Islands of Sin. I'm ready. Oh, I'm all ready. For <laughs> Islands of Sin, the series. It sounds like a slideshow, really. It does, yeah. Um, <laughs> Take a camera. Moving right along. Speaking of sin. <laughs> <laughs> let's let's talk about uh, – we didn't really get to dive too deeply into this. We touched on it in our last week's podcast, but it was a sort of a special live podcast. So, But obviously there's this uh, grand jury that is looking into Rick Perry and his handling of the um, Public Integrity Unit funding. And the recent revelations are sort of the behind-the-scenes wheeling and dealing that happened – uh, I think after and sort of just before the veto, I mean, it was like a uh, you know. So what exactly? Well, there depending went on down. well, and and we've talked to several different sources. Many of them don't want to be named, but who were involved in these behind the scenes conversations that were going back and forth between, um, from what we can tell, uh, Ken Armbruster and um, who is who is the former state senator. senator? He's a top aide to Governor Perry and a legislative aide, and he's. A frequent fireman when the governor needs, you know, go over there and figure out what those guys wanted, what these guys want. He's, he's, Ken is often one of the guys that gets sent in. Now, when I contacted him about this, he, he said, y- you need to go back to your sources. They don't know what they're talking about. But that's all we've heard from him on that issue. But several different people have confirmed that there were conversations going back and forth. Who initiated it? You know, it, it, that's still kind of um, going up in the air, depending on who you listen to. But what happened was, after the veto, there were conversations and there were a couple of meetings um, over um, in the governor's office with friends of uh, Rosemary Lemberg about what it would take to for her to step aside. And those conversations um, involved whether or not if um, the money was restored from the veto, whether or not she would she would step aside. That is what we're thinking is at the crux of the grand jury investigation, whether or not that can be uh, construed right. as a bribe. And so, Ross can provide. Yeah, so the quick setup on this is, you know, just to, you know, if anybody hadn't heard this already, uh, Rosemary Lemberg's the DA in Travis County. She got stopped drunk driving one night. Uh, did jail time, just basically, you know, didn't go to trial or anything, just said, you know, yeah, you were right, I was drunk. And so he, she did jail time. There was a civil trial about whether she should be removed or not. The judge said, no, you don't need to be removed. But while all of this was going on, the governor said, you know, I think that, you know, we have a a moral case to make here. And I think unless she resigns her office, I'm going to veto the funding that the state provides for the public integrity unit in Travis County. <laughs> which unit does uh, insurance fraud, tax fraud cases, uh, tax cases, and also notably 
any cases involving campaign finance or campaigns or officeholder duties of anybody in state office, so all the official corruption stuff. So it became a deal. She didn't resign. He vetoed the money, and then the the conversations that Terry's talking about started. And then this all became sort of um, enough of a conversation piece that they brought in a special prosecutor and a special judge to look at it, and they turned out apparently a report, the special prosecutor did, which has now gone to the grand jury. Are you interested in this or not interested in this? And, and that grand jury's meeting now. And several of the people that were included in those conversations are um, – being interviewed by the special prosecutor, um, Mike McCrum. Um, they um, include uh, some people, uh, a Travis County Commissioner. They include a Travis County Judge, but who have confirmed to us that these conversations were going on. Now, they characterize it as, you know, what can we do to get that money? Because obviously Travis County had to plug a huge hole for that funding. That funding was $7.5 million over two years. And they were able to, um, I think, plug in about $3 million for right. that first year. And so they're covered. They found the funding. But, of course, like any governmental entity, you don't want to have to, like, scramble to cover a three point two million dollar deficit. Right. Travis County was put in a position of, of funding something and not funding something else because the state cut its funding. So and, and a little history on that. Ronnie Earl, who was Rosemary's uh, predecessor, is has prided himself on being the person who was able to get that state funding in the first place. For years and years, um, the public ut- uh, the public integrity uh, unit um, has always been was funded by Travis County taxpayers, but a few years ago uh, he was able to get the state funding. Some have criticized him in the past that if you do that, you're going to put yourself up to to state scrutiny or. So are those people sort of saying "I told you so" right now? There are some people that are saying "I told you so" um, that you're going to just always make yourself a target with the state. It's a political deal. I mean, you know, if you're going to prosecute state officeholders, when you prosecute state officeholders or talk about prosecuting state officeholders. Um, they're going to come down on you. You know, Jim Maddox did it when he was attorney general and Ronnie Earl was prosecuting him. Kay Bailey Hutchison did it when she was treasurer and Ronnie Earl prosecuted her. And on and on and on and on. It's, you know, it puts you in a natural adversarial relationship with the people who are providing your funding. And I think some people are asking, you know, is it time to pull it out of the Travis County uh, district attorney's office, make it its own separate office or entity. There are far smaller offices or state offices around that you could make the case. I mean, right. also, you have other state entities that do some of these things. You've got an auditor's office, OIGs, a whole um, slew of sort of civil investigative forces. So why not put this in, in one of their houses? Right. The idea was, you know, you want to have somebody doing these prosecutions and handling these cases who can't be have their arm twisted by the people they're investigating, and and you know you have, you know the funding obviously offers a way to twist arms, and and the question here really sort of the broad question here before all of these investigators in this grand jury and all of this is were any arms twisted, and if so, were they twisted improperly, and and that means illegally. And, and what 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 makes it improper? Like when does it cross the line from being hardball politics to? Well, I think that's a really interesting question. And when I think does that it, is the question. Yeah, right and, now. and and does it you know at what point in this can you find if you were a prosecutor and you were going to take this to a jury, just play this out? You know, at what point in this would you say, you know, this actor, the governor or whoever it is, but let's just say the governor for for laughs here, 
if the what did the governor do here that was going to be of direct benefit to the governor? In what way did the governor use his office or his people to derive a direct benefit? You know, and, and that's that's kind of the question in front of this is how how do you it, did that happen? A do you think that happened? And B do you think it happened in a way that a jury will see it? Right. I mean. The question, I mean, some in the Democratic Party in, in Travis County say, well, you know, to have a, you know, to own a district attorney is a very good thing. And if you nominate that person, that person's going to be beholden to you. But does that really constitute some sort of bribery? Right. Or um, is that just politics as usual? I mean, that is the question. Right. And then, you know, there's one argument that, you know, th- well, there might have been cases in front of the prosecutor's that involved either the governor's office or people appointed by the governor's office, and this might have accrued to their benefit. I mean, you know, we don't know anything. I mean, there's a lot of speculation about that. And so does the revelation of the, of the sort of the behind-the-scenes uh, attempts at horse trading, I guess, you know, does that help or hurt the case, or is it just sort of more detail? I think it's really more detail. It's more than what we knew. Um, Mike McCrum earlier this month uh, made a statement to the statesman that said, um, he was concerned about actions, and those actions he was referring to were within the governor's office and and other people. And we didn't know what those were, and now we do. I mean, when I asked Mike McCrum, is this specifically what you're looking at, he says, we're looking at everything, the actions before and after the veto. And that's the clearest indication that it wasn't just the veto itself. There are other things that he's looking at, and he is interviewing all all the people who are privy to those conversations right now. And one question I had is, you know, there were reports that Perry sort of offered Lemberg a job in the Travis County DA's office. Could, does he have the power to offer anyone a job in the Travis County DA's office? No, but he could. He could say, you know, if if, he knows if events transpired in a particular way. You could stay then, with the you know, if you step right. aside and trade with your first assistant. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure you can even do that. I mean, it's sort of an interesting question. I mean, can an elected official swap with a, somebody they hired? I'm, you know, it gets weird very it, fast. It is very weird, um, and we do know we do know that that conversation did happen, right. and that the offer to trade the offer to trade. But the thing is, is that from what we know, Rosemary shut down the conversation immediately and said, "I I don't even think we should be talking about this." That's what we. We understand at this point in time. And I think I said last week that, uh, you know, I think from a public relations standpoint, obviously you have all these videos of Lemberg quite intoxicated and a little bit belligerent. Um, yeah, a little bit. <laughs> so I'm just being very generous. Clyde so Bundy's very a coop, generous, yeah. You, you are know. being very generous, yeah. Um, you know, does that does – that, help Perry or does it actually just sort of is it sort of irrelevant when you actually get down to the sort of the accusations he's facing it helps him in terms of just this being an accusation I mean if it's just if this stays at accusation level it's like you know he says look at her look at what I was doing and I think a lot of people look at that and go you know yeah I'm kind of with the governor on that if you if a grand jury turns out to actually do something then it becomes a whole different can of political problems but but as it stands now it's you know whether you like the governor or not, she's pretty hard to defend on this. Can we do a, a, the last few minutes on someone else's political problems? You just like grand juries, don't you? <laughs> Which uh, political problems? Well, I was going to go to Ken Paxson. He has oh, no okay. grand jury. Different, yeah. yeah. There's, there's, I you thought know, you were going to University you of Texas. I was going yeah. to, UT has some political problems, <laughs> the UT system, but we're going to spare you those today. Uh, Ross, do you want us to bring us up to speed on the 
Paxton stuff? Yeah, you know, Paxton is the leading candidate, by which I mean he's the one who finished first in March in the runoff for attorney general against Dan Branch now. And they're, you know, racing toward the May 27th runoff like everybody else is. And um, Jay Root on our staff uh, broke a story about uh, disclosures that appeared to um, – it looks like they should have been in Paxton's financial disclosures as an office holder that were not, you know, things having to do with, you know, he was in some business dealings and some um, some um, business relationships that weren't reported on his things. He had some business income that was not reported, and it apparently came to light. Um, and he was also maybe operating as a solicitor without proper registration. Right, right. That's right. And, and so it, it apparently came out because someone who had been getting estate and financial advice from him found out in the course of sorting out a bad investment that an investment he had recommended had actually earned him a commission. And the commission wasn't – that relationship wasn't reported either to them or on his public forms. The income from that was not reported on his on his public office holder forms. I assume he had it in his income taxes. That's another, another can of fish. Um, and he wasn't registered to do that. He wasn't, you know, registered as an agent for this financial kind of investment. So there was a bunch of paperwork to sort out. Paxton is now sorting that out. In fact, in response to Jay's inquiry said, you know, they decided to review and investigate or something like that themselves and, and, and sort out their paperwork. They've sorted out some of it. They haven't sorted out all of it. Notably, they haven't um, yet said anything about the income part of the, this reporting. Um, it's kind of a mess, and it's a political mess because he's a month away from a primary, and presumably Dan Branch is uh, going to beat him about the head and neck with this as we get closer to the runoff. But is he in a position where, because essentially since the report came out, he has not been doing much, right? He's been taking it very seriously and reviewing it, but not making a lot of appearances, not right. talking about it publicly. Uh, can he just coast to a win in, I, at the I end of the month? I don't think so. The political danger here, you know, all the other stuff aside, the political danger here is that candidates at this level of the ballot, neither one of these is a statewide office holder. Neither of them has run statewide before. And, and voters know a little bit about them, but not a lot about them. And, you know, this is when you're in danger as a political candidate if someone else defining you to the public, of someone else describing you in a way that the public says, ah, I don't think I want to vote for that guy. So Paxton has to put up a defense here and define himself positively before Branch defines him negatively. And, that, and that's really the political risk. But does he have the benefit of it just being such a crowded field these days that, uh, you well, know, he'll get he'll, – everyone will be drowned in Dewhurst and Patrick ads and they won't even think about the AG's race? I think part of the problem that he's got is that the lieutenant governor's race appears to be collapsing. You know, it's not as much of a competition as it had been. You know, it looks like, you know, Dewhurst has gone from being the incumbent frontrunner to being kind of a long shot. And, you know, voters are in a position of saying, well, you know, I'm looking for competition. What else you got? Oh, this AG's race is interesting. That's That in some ways is, you know, either the best or worst thing that can happen to these guys. Well, if you have questions about that or anything else, you can email them to tribcast at texastribune.org along with your comments. We'd like to thank Shiny Ribs for doing our music. And on behalf of Terry Ross, Jim, and our producer Todd, this is Reeve. Thanks for listening. Sort of like, no, don't tape record this.